All right, thank you. Take your Bible and turn with me to Romans 13. Romans 13. We're working our way through this wonderful book. And uh, just by way of review, the book of Romans is about the gospel. It very clearly establishes the gospel as the theme. Uh, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And because of the fact that the gospel is to the world, it has massive impacts for how we live our lives. He explains what the gospel is in the first 11 chapters, the fact that we are sinners, that we are saved by grace through faith, and the implications of that truth in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with the nation of Israel. And if the gospel is to the world, what, where does that leave Israel? And does God's plan fail is the question there. Of course, it is not. Then starting in chapter 12, in fact, if you go back just one chapter to chapter 12, you'll notice what we call the hinge of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What happens in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is he tells us, he, he basically, that is the introduction for the next several chapters. It goes all the way through chapter 15 into chapter 16. Where he says, because the gospel has these demands on our life, or because the gospel is true, it has demands on our life for how we live. And, and he launches into chapter 12 on how our, our responsibilities, especially towards each other, because he says, for the gra- I say through the grace given to me, everyone is among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Your relationship with people in the church is the focus of chapter 12. And even with those who are opposed to you at the end of chapter 12, those who want ill against you, want, want bad things for you, how you are to respond to them. And how our relationships work is chapter 12. That is a book, a chapter full of relationship uh, teaching from the Bible. And then we get into chapter 13. And he takes, uh, he kind of pulls the focus back a little bit and deals not with our personal relationships with people, but he begins to, do, to work through our relationship with the government. And this is be a very, very challenging thing to work through and very challenging thing for us to consider. So let's pray and ask God's guidance as we look at this chapter together, Romans chapter 13. Lord, we ask you give us grace and wisdom as we open your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you, Lord, for how you teach us about all manner of things in our life and how it applies to us. I pray that we would be uh, open to what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is a citizen's responsibility to its government? Is all government illegitimate? Should we be anarchists throwing bombs and getting rid of the government? Should we burn it all down? Some of you are like, yeah, (laughs) hang on. How does the gospel factor into how we are to behave in the public sphere? Should we just ignore politics? There are those Christians who say that Christians have no business in politics whatsoever. Should we ignore the civic things that are happening around us? Should we be involved in civil disobedience if the government doesn't do what we want it to do? How should we behave? What's the government's responsibility to its citizens? What happens if a government oversteps its God-ordained rules and disobeys its responsibility to its citizen? Does that give us citizens a right to disobey? In what context might that be acceptable? How should we respond to rules and regulations that we don't feel are reasonable or fair? Are we free to disobey rules that we do not like? 
Are we free to disregard laws that seem overreaching? These are a lot of questions. These are a lot of things that some of you may have never considered until 2020. These are some things that some people have just taken for granted. These are questions that a lot of us have not really even thought of as of today. So whether we want to or not, we're forced to deal with government. There's no way out of it. We have a government. In fact, it's interesting, and it's, it's kind of ironic. I didn't plan it this way, but this falls on July 4th week, right? We're, we're celebrating our independence from, from uh, tyranny as a country and, 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 and our own independence here. So how does our understanding of the gospel give us insight into how we are to live with government? Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 13. Let's begin here with the first couple verses. The scripture says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. The first principle we have here is that we are to submit to government because God ordains government. God ordains government. The normative position for believers, what I mean by that is that uh, the normal position we should have, the standard position we should have for believers and really for every soul, meaning this applies not just to people who call the name of Christ, but every person should do this, is to be submissive or subject to governing authorities. This is the rule. This is not the exception. This is the rule. And then he gives us a, a four clause, which explains why. Why is it that we should be subject to the authorities? Because it says there is no authority except from God. That is no authority. No, there, God is the one who ordains authority. And all authorities that exist are appointed by God. When we say that human government is appointed by God, we deny a couple key positions. Number one, we deny anarchists who would say that all government is tyranny. Any kind of governing authority is tyranny. There are those today who would say any kind of government is wrong, that you should have no one has the right to tell me what to do. This is like the three-year-old syndrome, right? You say no one can tell me what to do. Uh, well, no, we live in government society. In fact, God has a place for government, and that is a biblical way of thinking. Uh, I know some people get very frustrated with our government that is wrong and that is evil, uh, but the fact is that government exists, and it says here there is no authority except from God, and the authorities exist are appointed by God. Secondly, we deny extreme libertarians who claim that government has no proper function in a human society and that everyone should be free to pursue whatever they desire. This is not consistent with a scriptural understanding of sinfulness of human nature. Without restraint, people fall into chaos. And we'll see this in just a second when we look at Genesis. We see this in Genesis 6. I was just talking to Kim Baldwin about the book of Judges, right? When we have bad, uh, or maybe you don't know this, but Kim knows this. We were talking about the book of Judges, and we were talking about how chaotic the book of Judges is. And, and what's the theme that happens in the book of Judges? In that day, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you have people killing concubines and cutting them up in pieces. And you have and kids don't know about that part of the story, right? And then you have Ehud and Eglon and you have uh, all this, all this terrible things happen, all these terrible things. Even your heroes like Gideon and your heroes like Samson are not men you'd want your daughters to go on a date with. I mean, these are not good people. Yet God used them as judges. And that just shows you how bad things were. So we have to be careful our tendency could be to say, well, government, you know, we want small government, no government. The Bible has a place for government because the, re the authority of government rests, uh, it says, therefore, if you resist the authority, resist 
the ordinances of God and you're bringing, you're bringing judgment on yourself. You're bringing a judgment against yourself. To resist means to oppose, to stand against, to set yourself against. That means this, that God has ordained government as a legitimate means of delegating authority and enforcing order in the world. Let me say that one more time. God has ordained human government as a legitimate means of delegating authority and enforcing order in the world. So let's look at a couple passages here. I, I'm going to put them up on the screen. The first is, is Genesis 9. We see human government was established after the fall. We see this in Genesis 6, 5 uh, as we begin. Uh, before, this is before human government is established. Let's look at the context of this. In Genesis 6, 5, this is right before the flood. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice the description of men. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Okay? And because this is the case, God sends a flood and punishes the world and punishes them for their wickedness. And after the flood happens, God blesses Noah and his family with an echo of the blessing he gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Look at Genesis 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply. Can you read? I know that's small. Can you read that? And fill the earth. But there's a difference here. He says, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. That's new. That's different. Post-flood. And every bird of the air and all things that move on the earth and of all fish in the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be what? Food for you. We have here established the, the authority of human beings to kill animals for food. Now, why would this have been very important for those coming off the ark? Think about it. How long does it take to grow an orchard? Right? How long does it take you to get your vegetables? Some of you who plant your vegetables, you know, you're so excited when you get a few tomatoes you can put on top of a sandwich. Can you imagine trying to feed your family with your food? Okay, so it takes a time. Up until this time, people had been eating the herbs of the field. We, and here, God gives authority to man to actually eat meat. And I hear Mike Jensen say, amen, brother, right? They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is interesting because only later in the, um, in the law, in the Mosaic law, do we have the restrictions of food. Here, every living thing is given as food for you. I have given you all things even as I've given the green herbs, even as you could previously eat food. So we have that established. And if you follow the theology, there's a thing called dispensations. There are different dispensations or times in which God dealt differently with people. And here we have a time when God institutes human government. That's what this is the beginning of here. If you keep reading in verse 4, he says, you shall, but there are some limitations here. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. So they were not to eat meat raw or to eat or drink blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require a life of man. And, and here's what he says uh, explicitly. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. Here, institution of capital punishment. And he says that if you kill people, you, your life will be taken from you by people. So human government hereby is established by God where there are people, you know, he doesn't lay out like the whole jury pool and beyond a reasonable doubt and those things. Those are taken from biblical principles. There's a lot of, in our, in our current system, is taken from biblical principles. Some of you know more, this more than I do. But the principle here is that God gives man the authority to take life if the other human being is a murderer. 
Now, why would this have been important coming off the, the violence of the pre-flood world? What happened in the pre-flood world? How much, remember, there was violence everywhere. They were known for their violence. They were known for their killing. And so here, this is established. And so God, God gives us, and he says, after you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly the earth and multiply in it. So I, I take this little sidestep to say that there here is, is the death penalty established. There's, Bible scholars believe this is the institution of human government, because that's what he's saying here. Uh, there is a, a, a shedding of blood that is allowed by man of men because of this sin, because when someone commits murder. So we have the human government established, and God ordains human government. We second, secondly see here, submit to government because, verse 3 through 5, it is for your good. It is for your good. That's your blank. He says, for rulers, here's another explanation. We see the word for, we have an explanation. Rulers are a terror, are a fear, that cause fear to good works, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and then you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. This is very important. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. This sword is again referring to capital punishment. Bearing the sword is the same shedding of blood as in Genesis chapter 6. For he, the government, is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. It's interesting for me to consider Paul's treatment of government and its proper use for how he was mistreated by government. We've been reading through that in the book of Acts. And specifically the contrast between Roman and Jewish laws. Um, So here the government acts as God's minister. This is important. You see this word right here, God's minister? We have it twice, God's minister here. And what this means is that he is God's worker. He has been given the right and the authority and the responsibility to avenge and execute wrath on him who practices evil. Wrath is coming on those who practice evil. His, his job is an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You see, this is the responsibility of government. He has a delegated authority from God. Can you think of any other verses that have to say something about vengeance and wrath? Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How does God repay? Sometimes divinely, often through his ministers. When you submit, when someone violates you, and when someone commits sin against you, or or commits a crime against you, and when you submit them to government authorities for proper dealing with, what you are doing is you're obeying Romans 12, 19. You are not taking vengeance in your own hands. You're not sneaking up at their house in the middle of the night and shooting them through the bathroom window, right? That's not what you're doing. You are turning them over to government authorities who have been given and responsible for the delegation of vengeance against wrath. Now go back to this verse here. You must also be subject, I'm sorry, he says, they are God's minister and avenger for wrath. Now here's the problem. When functioning properly, what is government's job? When it comes to what are they supposed to do to evil? Punish and restrain evil. What are they supposed to do for good? To good. Reward good. And do you see it? He says it here. He is God's minister. Therefore, government is subject to God. And here's an important key distinction how Christians think about government versus how the world thinks about government. The government is not God. 
The government does not have the right to determine what is right and wrong. The government is wrong when it stands against God. So the government is subject to God. The government is God's minister, and government can be evil, and government can be wrong. Paul is not saying that you have to obey government whenever it does anything. Let me give you an example, an illustration that might help you think through this. Let's say a police officer showed up at your house with a badge and demanded to come into your house, and he began stealing things from you, okay? And then he, and then he took one of your children and, and hit him across the face with his open palm. Now, what, w- what would you say to that? Well, he's the police. He gets to do whatever he wants, right? He has authority. No, he, he doesn't actually have that authority, right? He has certain delegated authorities that he can search your house with a warrant, but he just can't come in and start stealing things. He can't abuse you because he has authority. His authority is delegated authority from the state, which is delegated from God. And as long as they are operating within the authorities which they are delegated, they, you should obey them. But there is a problem when government acts outside of its authority, like the police officer who comes to your house and does something that's inappropriate, right? Then you would report that police officer and you hope that they get, get dealt with. You see, this is important for us to understand because that what he's saying here is if government is functioning properly, you won't be punished by government if you're doing what is righteous. And if you do what's evil, you have every expectation of being afraid of those in authority because their job is to bring justice because they don't uh, brandish the sword, they don't bear the sword in vain. Look at verse 5. He says, you have two reasons to be subject to authorities. First is because of wrath. And what that means is, is that you don't want to face the justice of government. And the second is for conscience sake. That is to keep your conscience clear. Um, and we'll get back into government misbehaving in a minute, but this is interesting. He says you need to be obedient for conscience sake. There might be legal things that aren't necessarily moral things. Can you think of some legal things that aren't moral things? Speeding laws, right? Is it actually immoral to go 46 miles per hour? Of course not. If the sign says 25, that's what made it illegal, was that there was a sign there that said 25 and you were going 45. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing immoral about that. There is something always immoral about committing adultery, right, or about, kill, about murder. But, but speeding laws, uh, there are all kinds of laws, right? They're, they're, uh, let me give you an example. One time when I was at school, uh, uh, there used to have signs on, on, um, on stairwells, right? They had an up stairwell and they had a down stairwell. And the reason they had those rules was there's nothing about that stairwell that made it better to go up. It's just it was on the right-hand side. And when there was a lot of traffic, they wanted everybody going the same way, right? Can, do you visualize what I'm saying? There was on the same thing. There, was a, there were two stairwells on, the, on both sides of this hallway. And one had an up arrow and one had a down arrow. Now, is it immoral for me to go, down the, uh, go up the down uh, staircase? No, it's not, it's not immoral for me to do that. But if, if I'm, what happens if I come to that staircase and look at those two, and I'm like, I'm going to be bad today. And I go up the down, then I'm, then I'm creating a problem. I'm being, I am being, I'm disobeying the law, and I'm creating a problem in my conscience. I'm actually, it's actually creating an issue when other people say, what is he doing that for? Why is he going, uh, I'm creating an issue for my conscience. Am I doing this for the wrong reasons? And also a testimony issue. 
So there are issues, like, uh, like for example, speeding is a great example. If you have your wife and she's expecting and she's, deli- like she's in, in labor, by all means, go. <laughs> it's the most moral thing you can do. Get there as fast as you can, right? Safely. Safely. I heard safely. Yes, I heard. Um, but there, there are, uh, think about parking, parking laws. There's nothing inherently moral about where a car sits necessarily. But the direct disobedience to a rule can become a moral issue. If it says no parking, and you're like, I don't care, and you park there, it can become a, a problem. You can actually sin by disobeying a rule, even if there's nothing inherently moral about parking. You see what I'm saying? So that's what he's saying. For wrath and for conscience sake, we need to be subject uh, to government. Any questions so far on this? I'll come back to it if you want. Should we keep moving? All right. Verse 6. I didn't give you a whole lot of time there to think about that, did I? That's okay. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Who our favorite topic. For they, government officials, are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. It's not fun to pay taxes, but we are required to do so. It is our duty. It is due them. Uh, Remember what Jesus said. He said, uh, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's the underlying principle he's saying here? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, because why did he say it belonged to Caesar? Why did he say the coin belonged to Caesar? Because it has a picture on it. Whose picture are you? You're made in the image of God, right? So who should you be rendered to? The point Jesus is making is that you belong to God, therefore render yourself to God. Just like you give your taxes to the government because it's due them, has his face on it, you have God's face on you. You are made in his image. That's the, some of what Jesus is saying there. Paying taxes is part of being a citizen or living in a community. Even though we're not real citizens of the earth, we must submit while he are, we are here on earth. Why do we pay taxes? Well, because uh, they are ministers attending continually to this very thing. There's a delegation of responsibility to them, and they are due. They are, they are uh, just like they are uh, do their fear and they do their honor. They do these things because of who they are and because the position they occupy. As hard as it is, you need to respect those who are in authority over you. And you need to respect the office, even if you don't respect the person in the office. They are responsible for God to how they conduct themselves, and they are not the final authority. Paul picks up on this owing language when he says next uh, in verse 8, owe no one anything except to what? To love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, they are summed up in this saying, namely what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Verse 8, he says, your most, your responsibility to other people is not to owe them anything except love. Love is the most selfless thing you can do because love doesn't do harm. Love 
gives, and it's the fulfillment of the law. We see this twice. It is the fulfillment of the law here, and then in verse 8, he says it's the fulfillment of the law. What does he mean by it's the fulfillment of the law? He means that if you are loving people, then the law, doing the law will flow naturally out of your life. You won't have to check a bunch of boxes because you are loving people. You will naturally not lie to them. You will naturally not commit adultery. You will naturally not murder them or or what's the other one he says, um, steal from them because you love them. So love is the opposite, or love is the opposite of selfishness, and love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice here how he focuses on the heart instead of on the externals. This is a good parenting principle here, where he says that you need to, you need to think about what's coming out, coming from within the heart. You, you love people, and the, 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 the way that works in your life is you obey the law. If you just focus on rules constantly without focusing on the heart, you can build a good Pharisee, someone who obeys rules, but their heart is wicked and far from God. You've got to focus on their heart, loving others and loving God and loving people. Okay, any, any, any questions before we move on to verse 11, where we deal with our own heart here? And then we'll talk a little more about government as we wrap up. Any thoughts or questions? I'll come back to you. But don't hesitate. I know I'm, I'm running fast through this. Okay, let's keep going. Look at verse 11. As he talks about dealing with our own hearts, he first has the word of urgency. The word of urgency, that the time is at hand. Look at verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, knowing that it's, it's an important time. Don't waste your time. And now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. He, he says, in light of the urgency of the moment, it's time to wake up. And he gives two let us statements. And these are, these are called, uh, the technical term is a hortatory subjunctive. It just means that it's a, an imperative that includes the speaker. Okay? If you say, you need to wake up, that's one thing. But if I say, let us wake up, that means I need to wake up too. Right? And so by doing this, he's saying it's a command that involves the speaker. Let us do two main things. What does he say? To cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. What does that remind you of? What's it remind you? Old man and the new man. Ephesians 4. Good job. In fact, you're looking at your notes. You see it right there, right? Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. What are you to put off? Concerning your former conduct, the old man that grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your minds is step one. Step two, step three, that you put on the new man which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. Cast off the works of darkness. Stop being wicked in your behavior and put on the armor of light. Another verse that has to do with the armor of light is Ephesians chapter 6. Another uh, book written by Paul. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the trickery of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith which you, with which you were able to quench the, all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We have here our command that because it's urgent and it's important for us, we must 
take on spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual armor, armor of light, and put off works of darkness. Again, contrast here between light and darkness. Light is from God. Darkness is uh, an absence of light from God. So we, we are definitely uh, want, wanting to walk as children of light. Last little section here of Romans chapter 13 talks about excellency, living out the Christian life. We talked about urgency. The time is at hand. So how should we live out the Christian life? Look at verse 13. Let us, again, another subjunctive, hortatory subjunctive, let us walk properly as in the day, light, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy, but another put on phrase. This is our put off here. Put off revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. Put on who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Put on everything that Jesus is. And how do you do this? When you put on Christ, I love this phrase, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What this has the idea of is that you do not allow your flesh to have room. You don't make a room or make an allowance for your flesh to have access or your flesh to have to run its course or to, to run towards destruction. Because what does James tell us about the flesh? Or First John, I, I, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And we love the world, the things that are in the world. The love of the Father is not in us. Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these fleshly things lead towards destruction and death. So we are to put on Christ and not make any provision for the flesh. In fact, this idea of killing or mortifying the flesh is very important. We see that in a couple passages here. Romans chapter 8, I forgot to put this in my, in my outline here or my uh, PowerPoint, but Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you through the spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is important for us as Christians. When we deal with the flesh, we should not play around with it. We should not, um, uh, I don't know, um, flirt with it or, you know, have, see, there's the old illustration of seeing how close you can get to the line before you fall over. That's not wise because the way that things work, you're going to fall over, right? If you get close to the line, wisdom is not getting close to the line. Wisdom is not making provision for the flesh. Put those things to death. Don't, oh, the other thing I was thinking of is, is sometimes we try to reform ourselves. We say, I want to ref, you know, just get better. And the picture of Christianity is not reforming yourself and it's putting to death that which is wicked and totally believing in the new, or totally taking on the new man, which is Christ. Colossians 3.5 is another reference. I have it there in your notes. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So put these things to death. Think biblically and act biblically. Okay, uh, as we conclude, we have about 10 minutes. I want to ask a little bit here. Uh, I have a few questions and a few notes, and I'd wonder if you have any thoughts. I want to go back to talking a little bit about the first part of this chapter and government. I have, uh, I was thinking about what's the difference between how a Christian should think about government and how our pop culture today thinks about government. Um, what, 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 what do you notice about how we talked here, especially as it relates to um, government and not being God? Like, I think some people think almost elevate government to the position of God. Can you think of examples of ways in which people do that? 
the government owes them something, right? The government will take care of me, right? It's not, I will trust the Lord to get me through this. It's, I will trust my government to get me through this, yeah? So government is provider. What other things, perversion of this? I like the, the thinking about the fact that so many people define their morality based on what's legal. And this happened a lot with, with the abortion debate. When they said, well, abortion's legal, so it's fine. Of course, now that it's not legal in some places, that doesn't mean it's not fine to them. You know, it was just, it was a way of, of punting on the discussion and saying, well, the government says I can do it, so I can. It's like defining government as God. So, so that's bad. Um, or rejecting government completely, rejecting any authority outside the self. I can do whatever I want, and no one can tell me not to. Uh, that's very dangerous as well, because scripturally, we need to submit to governing authority. So we have a couple uh, questions in here. How, sh- how does the gospel factor in how we behave in the public sphere? I think that we should be submissive in what we do. Christians should be known for our willingness to endure and our willingness to submit. We should be known as law-keeping people. That is the, the truth of it. Now, I, I think that, 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 is, um, that we should be known as honest and law-keeping people. If we're not, that's a shame on us. We should be known as people who keep the law. In, in a nation like ours where involvement of the people is encouraged, it's expected, then you should involve yourself in government as much as legally possible. Okay? In our government system, hey, it's, uh, we are a democratic republic. We get to vote on representatives to vote for us. You should call your representatives. You should make your voice heard. Absolutely. But we are not to be corrupt in how we get things done. Okay? No bribing. We should not be bribing people. We should, we should not be leveraging uh, things against people. We should not be intimidating or mob, mobbing on people. We should not be doing things that are, that are wrong, that are immoral. So should we ignore politics? I say no. We should be involved as much as we can. But we need to remember that political changes are not the answers to our problems. The only real, change, only real answer for change is the work that God has in the hearts of people. That's what I believe. I think that some political things are important, but uh, we have to be careful not to put all of our emphasis on that. I also want to say that all laws or value statements are moral statements. So we ought to encourage policies and laws that adhere to biblical ideas of morality and not secular or relativistic ideas of morality. So um, I think you ought to encourage your government to vote on laws that uphold biblical values. And I know a lot of you do that, so thank you for that. Also, how should we respond to rules and regulations we don't think are fair? Okay, what do you think about this? How about if you don't think they're reasonable? Are you free to disregard laws that are overreaching? I don't know what you think. I'm going to give you my opinion, then you can, you can debate with me. That's why I have, yeah, that's right. You ready? I, I believe, first of all, we cannot just ignore things we don't like. Just because we don't approve doesn't mean we can ignore it or disobey it. That's first of all. The only time, biblically, I can find that we are allowed to disobey the authorities is when we're being asked or forced to do something against God's word. And if we do that, we must be willing to disobey and take the consequences. So, for example, I think the great examples of these are uh, Exodus chapter 2, when the Egyptian women and their disobedience to Pharaoh, who said, kill all the, the boys, and what did they do? They, um, they said, oh, we can't help these Hebrew women. They just have babies so fast. I mean, I don't know what to do, right? They, they disobeyed. They disobeyed Pharaoh, and they, and, they, uh, and they saved these boys. They are commended for that. Um, how about Rahab the harlot? 
What did she do? She, she, she had spies living in her house or coming to her house, and they're staying upstairs, and the soldier comes to the door, and the soldier says, uh, where are the spies? And what does she say? Oh, they're gone. They went along way, way over there. And um, so she lies in order to protect life. And what she's doing, and this, I know this, some of you, this might be a little stretch for you to think through, but, but bear with me here. In that moment, what she's doing is she's aligning herself with the Lord, and she's disconnecting herself from her current culture. She is, by doing that, by, by, by lying to these soldiers and by aligning herself with the people upstairs in her house, she's protecting them, and she's saying, I'm with you guys. I trust the Lord because I am abandoning my people and trusting you and trusting God. And, and so, because imagine the alternative. What would have happened if she just said, because um, I've heard people say, well, you know, you should never, ever do that. Like if, if I heard one, ter- one time I heard a pastor say, you know, if I was living in the days of the Nazis and the Jews, I would have, you know, if I was hiding Jews in my house and Nazis would have come to my door, I would have said, yes, sir, they're in my house, you know, over there. And God would blind their eyes or something. And I'm like, really? What would the Jews think who are hiding under your table? If you hear them over, you know, yeah, they're under the table. Like what? <laughs> we trust this guy. Same thing. If you're, if you're these uh, spies and you're upstairs and Rahab says, yeah, they're upstairs. They say, oh, no, no. And, and uh, can you imagine like, what, what is she doing there? Is she really trusting God or is she, is she truly, what is she, you know, you understand what I'm saying? I know I'm not being extremely clear, but the point being that, that, that I think that her disobedience to the soldiers who came to the door actually aligned herself with Yahweh, with God. And, and thirdly, the apostles who refused to stop preaching despite the commands from civil authorities, who did they, what do they say? We must obey God rather than men. So when, when men are are, are saying, are punishing good behavior, is to preach good behavior, is to preach righteous. Yes. Is preaching righteous? Yes. And they said, you cannot preach. We will punish you. They are now punishing what is righteous and not, uphold, not, not punishing what is evil. They have the authority and they have the right to say, I'm sorry, we cannot obey you. We must obey God rather than men. And if government authorities tell us that we cannot meet in this building and have worship services, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, we must obey God rather than men. We will, we will preach the gospel. We will speak the truth. And you can't tell us what, your authority does not exist in this room. This is God's house. This is where we meet to worship the Lord, and we will preach his word, and we will preach his word with his authority, and you're supposed to be uh, submissive to him. And if you think that you are more, have more authority than God and that you can tell us that we're allowed to preach certain parts of the Bible and other parts we're not allowed to say or that we have to do certain things, I'm sorry, you, your authority exists in how we pay taxes and how we do our... our um, parking lot and how we, you know, we do all kinds of things around here that are in code. We had to put in sprinklers. We had to spend a lot of money to put in sprinkler system in our church to keep a fire away, even though nobody lives here, right? And if there's a fire, we're all going to get out fine. We had to obey, right? Are we going to obey in that case? Absolutely. Is it a moral issue to have sprinklers in your house or in the church? No, it's not a moral issue. There are people all over the world who don't have sprinklers in their churches. But in our case, we submitted to our governing authorities, and we put sprinklers in our church, even though it costs us a lot of money. Why? For conscience sake, right? And for wrath, for that we did not uh, be a bad testimony to them. So, so we have, a, as a church, we have the responsibility to do what's righteous, and when government oversteps or does what is unrighteous, we have the responsibility to obey God. And I've had people in this church say, hey, if you end up going to jail, I'll go with you. And I thank you for those of you who said that. I know not all of you have, have said that. I'm not going to put that on all of you, 
But, um, but we are confident and we are, we are willing to speak the truth without fear because we know God's going to take care of us. And that's the end of it. So what, what do we do when government misbehaves? When the government functions outside of its responsibilities outlined in Romans 13, that is to promote the good and punish evil, it has actually rejected its higher authority and its reason for existence. And in this case, it's the responsibility of Christians to preach the truth and to act righteously, even if the government punishes the good and promotes the evil. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, we're living in a country today. Many people are promoting evil and punishing the good. And we have to be willing to step up and say, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen here. We are going to promote good, and we are going to ask them to punish the evil. And, and we have to ask God to change people's hearts, and we have to do what we can as, as a people, because that's where the uh, ultimate responsibility is for us as people and uh, citizens of our country. Obedience to the higher or highest authority means we must appeal to our governors to follow the law that governs them. They are not the highest authority. This is the big difference, is that people who believe God is our government is God, believe that they are the highest authority, that government can just decide what they want to do, and that they, they have the authority to do so. We do not believe that is the case. They can say whatever they want to say. That baby is still a baby in that mother's womb, no matter what you call it. Well, we, you can say whatever you want to say, but, but a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. And we, meet, we need to preach hope and we need to preach the truth to people so they are not um, uh, depending on, on the government. Also, our former government means we ought to be involved and promote godly rule. I want you to turn to a couple passages here as we close. Can you help me here? Psalm 33. Psalm 33:12. Eric actually read this verse this morning. I'm thankful uh, he mentioned it. We didn't coordinate this, but Psalm 33:12. says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord here has chosen the nation of Israel as his people, but we as a people can choose the Lord as our God. That is always God's intent, is that the nations follow him, that the people of the world obey his rule and obey his authority. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Psalm 144, verse 15 as well says that. And God's authority must be followed by human governments. And when human governments understand their position and follow God's law, things work much better. We're able to do what is right. That is really the essence of freedom. The essence of liberty is the freedom to do righteous things. And our government should not be punishing the good and exalting evil. Yes, sir. Yeah, so there is, a, he says, the gross misunderstanding of separation of church and state is the essence of a lot of the problems. So I th- I'm not a constitutional scholar. I think you all know that. But um, I know that there is no establishment, there is the no establishment clause in the First Amendment, which all that means is that the federal government cannot establish uh, a state religion. And um, I think at its founding, I think Maryland used to be a Catholic colony. It's called Maryland for a reason. And uh, there, were many, uh, state, there were many state governments that even had religions. I'm not going to get into all that. But the point is, is that there was the letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, Thomas Jefferson. A lot of you know that, where they talked about a Baptist distinctive is the separation of church and state, meaning that 
We do not believe that the state should impose a state religion or a state church. That it ought to be a conscience decision. But what has been taken is that now there's the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which believes that that government should not have any influence from God or from religion at all. Therefore, we have uh, prayer taken out of schools. We have people who, uh, people who are not allowed to pray. People who are not allowed to talk about the Bible in schools. But all that happens when you do that is that the new religion works its way in, right? If you take, if you take true religion out, paganism will work its way in, and that's what's happened in a lot of our cultures today. Yeah. So we are supposed to be active. We are supposed to be involved, and I think we should be. And if you, if you have any way of doing that, if you have any way of serving, if you have time, if you have a way of, of, of serving your community in this way, it is, is important that we as Christians behave uh, righteously and, and, and above board, but that we do partake in, in these kinds of things. Any other comments or questions or thoughts? I know this is a touchy subject, but I think it's important for us to consider and think about. Any other thoughts? Think about, as we go through the next couple weeks on Sunday mornings, we'll wrap it up now. Paul appealing to Caesar. Think about how he appeals to them, and he appeals to the truth. And he appeals to the natural. It's amazing that to me, as I was studying this week, I was fascinated with the fact that it was the Romans who knew better than the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities steeped in the Old Testament. They should have known how to do things right. But yet, what did they do? They, they manipulated, they, they lied, and they, they tried to kill Paul. It was the Romans. It was Festus. It was Agrippa. And it's, um, uh, it's Caesar who here before, who here and are willing to actually uh, obey God's proper um, uh, law here. They're able to put themselves in that position uh, of submitting to God's law and natural law in that case. All right. I hope this is helpful. I hope this is in- encouraging for you to think through and, and uh, help- helpful for you to kind of think through uh, how we respond to government and how we should be to government. Let us be a people who have a good relationship with our government. Let us not be known as uh, a problem, but as obedient and orderly people who, who appeal for people to, uh, to obey the Lord and to obey good government. All right. Let's pray and we'll be closed. Father, thank you so much for how you work in our lives and how you have given us this, um, this wonderful country in which we live, even on this, uh, this Sunday as we get ready to get into a 4th of July week, uh, this Independence Day on Tuesday, we rejoice that you have given our fathers, our forefathers, such courage to, to preach about liberty and preach against those who were abusing them and were abusing um, their authority. And we're thankful that we do have a free country. I pray you'd help us to keep this free country for our children and for our grandchildren that we can have a, a, to, a, a place where the, the truth can be proclaimed, where we can send missionaries around the world, where we have the freedom to, to preach the gospel, the freedom to believe, or the freedom to, to, to share with others about the gospel, the freedom to speak how we'd like to speak without, free, without any fear of, of recourse. But Lord, we know that these days might be numbered and there might be those, we know there are people who want us silenced and want the truth silenced. We pray for their conversion. God, I pray that they would be humbled before you and you would bring them to yourself and they might be saved and turn like the Apostle Paul from the greatest enemies into one of the greatest evangelists for the truth. What a wonderful thing it would be, Lord, if we saw some of those who hate us turn to loving you. We ask for you, Lord, to work in their hearts that they would trust you and be converted. We pray also, Lord, you would give us a good night as we we, um, uh, have a time of fellowship, Lord. I pray your blessings on any food that is eaten, and you're, you're just a good time of fellowship and encouragement as we gather together. Lord, thank you for your word and for its direction in all areas of our life. We pray your blessings on the remainder of our evening. In Jesus' name, amen.